You're listening to TIP. I went inside and figured out a lot of things. And that's why my why and my goals are such the way that they are. Because I realized like, I, I don't want to build this like crazy portfolio. I just want to create even it's still a large portfolio. Don't get me wrong. It's still like we're still reaching high. For me, it's more of about a lifestyle and creating. It's more about creating the life that I want than like some ego trip of building this huge portfolio. Hey, everybody. In this week's episode, I got to sit down with Jonathan Barr to talk about how he renovated over 400 homes in Los Angeles with his family's business, how he 1031 some duplexes he owned into investing in Midwest multifamily, how he's managing these properties remotely, why he's a big fan of interest-only loans and cost segregation studies, what his why is, and why mental health advocacy is really important to him. Jonathan has over 14 years of real estate experience and started his career during the 2008 Great Financial Crisis. He was involved in the acquisition and disposition of over 400 residential flips in the competitive Los Angeles market. In 2020, he made the transition from LA real estate to create JB2 Investments along with his brother Jeff to focus on cash-flowing markets in the Midwest. They currently have $35 million in assets under management and 420 units in the portfolio. They've beaten projections to date thanks to conservative underwriting, thinking outside the box, and shrewd asset management. This is a great episode to learn how to wisely make the transition from a fix-and-flip renovation business to investing in long-term cash-flowing holds in the multifamily sector and in an entirely new market. The highlight for me was Jonathan bravely discussing his own challenges with mental health and what he's done for his own self-care. For anyone perhaps struggling through a rough patch in their career or personal life, this is an episode you'll want to tune into. And so, without further delay, let's jump into this week's episode with Jonathan Barr. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 show. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And with me today as a guest, I'm really happy to have on Jonathan Barr of JB2 Investments. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. I've talked a little bit with you prior to this about meeting, not meeting your mom, but you've connected us with your mom. I watched her interview at Reconvene, which was great. I'm going to have her on the show in a little bit. But I want to get started talking about you worked in the family business. And tell us a little bit about that, about her business, how she started it, how you got involved in LA doing the kind of flips that you were doing. Just want to hear a little bit more about the, the family business and what it was like for you getting started with that. My mom and my stepdad, they've been flipping homes since, I don't know, the early 90s. So they've been doing it for 30 plus years. And then in 2008, when the last recession happened, couldn't find a job and was just graduating from college and decided to join up with them. And we started going to the foreclosure auctions and buying tons of homes that way. And it's kind of what got me into what I'm doing now. Tell me more about that. Like you graduated right at the height of the 2008 great financial crisis. What did you study? Where'd you go to? And what were your kind of career thoughts coming out of college? Yeah, I studied finance, which actually helps a lot in what we're doing now. 
I think initially I was like, I don't want to work in a family business. I want to do my own thing, maybe get into like a business consulting firm. But it just was really tough to find a job at that time. And it just kind of made sense to jump into the family business. And little did I know that it was the best time to jump into flipping homes because of all the REOs and and short sales and all that kind of stuff that was happening at that time. And like looking back at it, I mean, we were buying properties in LA for a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars that today are worth a million dollars. And so like growing up as a kid, were you working with your mom, helping out, doing anything like in the summers with her? Yeah, I would like go on the weekends to look at houses or go to open houses and always was around it. Like our dinner table was people talking about it. So it's, it's definitely in my blood. When you started with your, your mom and, and stepfather, what was that like? You're 22 or so. What did they have you get started doing with the company? So I first actually started more as like an agent, like showing buyers properties and that kind of stuff. And then we eventually got into the auctions and the trustee sales. So I was doing acquisitions. So we had a couple people at the auction sites. I at first went to the auction sites myself. So I kind of experienced that firsthand and then looking at the MLS and all that. But, you know, later being in that business, it definitely got challenging working with your parents because you get to a certain point where like you kind of know as much as they know. And then you have certain ideas of where you want to take things. And it kind of, there starts to become some conflict because of that. Absolutely. I mean, any workplace is going to have some conflict, but when you involve family members, it's like a whole nother dynamic and I can totally empathize. Yeah. You bring all like the history of your life with them into the business, if you like it or not. You try not to, but it just kind of happens. Exactly. Exactly. I worked with my dad. He had a development company and worked every summer with him. And I just remember he and his brothers getting into huge arguments. And as a kid, I was like, I don't know if this is for me. Because it's tough. It's really tough. And it, and it does stress relationships. And you've got a brother, right? That was also involved in the company? Yeah. My, my brother, who's my partner now as well. But that worked well. We've always got along really well. And, and I think we're also, you know, it's different dynamics because you're essentially equals. So it's like there's less of a parent-kid dynamic that makes it a little easier. And don't get me wrong, I love my mother and she's amazing and she's done incredible things and I wouldn't be where I am today without all the guidance and everything she's resources she's given me. But now I am happy to be off on my own, do my own thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good transition. We're going to get into that, the transition here in a little bit, but I wanted to hear more about the actual flipping business. You guys did how many flips? Like over 400, right? We did 400 over a 10-year period. Yep. That's a ton of flips. Talk to us about like the systems you had in place, the process, what you liked about it, what you didn't like. Talk, go into that a little bit. We were going to the auctions. We were buying about at 1.8 homes a month, which is pretty crazy. We had our own program and app and stuff that we had a couple of people in the morning looking at properties. We had two people at the auctions bidding on houses. And then we had three project managers that are overseeing like 30 projects at any given time. So we had a whole whole operation and everything that was like a factory of like churning out these properties. And one thing that also made us really successful is in the areas that we're working, they're starting to get kind of gentrified. And I noticed that people are starting to do like higher end flips, I guess you could say, 
well, I noticed that like I saw one house where they did it and they did really well. And so we started doing that. And so at the auctions, we were creating new comps that weren't out there yet that we had under contract. So we were able to bid up higher that no one else at the auctions knew that they could hit values. We were bidding everyone out and buying way more homes that way because of the strategy that we had in place that was making us pretty successful and printing cash. And so were you buying properties all on one street, one neighborhood and just focusing or were you all over LA? Yeah, it was like most, mostly Northeast LA. So if you're familiar with LA, Silver Lake, Echo Park, Highland Park, Pasadena, Altadena, some of the Northeast kind of corner. Like you said, you're 2008, 9, 10, you're buying them super cheap. Tell me about a, a typical house. I mean, were you taking them down to the studs? What, what did the flip look like? Was it more cosmetic? I mean, it was kind of all across the board. I think at first it was a little bit more cosmetic because the deals are so good. We didn't really have to do much to turn a profit. And as time went on and it got a little more competitive, we had to do like we would do gut jobs. We would do additions. It kind of was all across the board. It just kind of depended on, and we've sold properties as is too. So it was all across the board. We were able to do anything. And that's also another thing that made us successful is we could take hairy deals and make something out of them. So were you using just family money? Were you bringing in investors to do all of this? How were you funding the projects? Yeah, we brought investors that gave us the money and then we split the profits 50-50. And then eventually we were using hard money and, and just recycling through cash. And we'd buy properties at the auctions and have the hard money lenders give us the money for those purchases a couple of days later and then take it back to the auction. So we were able to like recycle not even a huge, a ton of money. Wow, that's uh, impressive. Yeah, it takes a special relationship for someone, hard money lender, to be willing to do that. How long would one of the flips typically take? And, and you were, you're basically doing everything in-house, right? You guys are handling all of it. You're not farming anything out. It sounded like you've got... I mean, technically, there was like sort of outside contractors, but they essentially only work for our, us. So they are, in essence, it felt like they're within our company, yes. And then were you guys holding on to any of the properties? I mean, you were, you were in an area that, like you said, is gentrifying. You knew that they were going up in value. You were pushing values up. Were you guys holding on to any of the properties for the longer term? Unfortunately, we were not, and we should have. I actually post this on Twitter all the time. If we would have kept like a third of the property that we flipped, anyone in our family probably wouldn't have to be lifting a finger at this point. Luckily, I did buy some properties for myself, some duplexes that I bought during that time that I held, which subsequently I sold to 1031 into the deals that we're doing now. Okay, we're going to get into those deals and and the 1031. I want to go into that in in depth and talk about that. But I still want to stay with the flips. So as the years progressed, you're what, 2019, 2020, was it getting harder and harder to find good deals? And were the numbers just not making sense? It was definitely very challenging. There was basically no more REOs. You know, the, the flip business was definitely getting saturated because you have all those people promoting flips. So you can get rich, whatever, whatever. But we had our little niche there and we did high quality flips. Like I don't even necessarily call them flips. They're like almost restorations. A lot of the work that we're doing, 
And we, we had a lot of good contacts with different agents and had kind of a name for ourselves. So people would bring us stuff a lot and we do a lot of digging. I mean, it wasn't easy. We had to look at, I don't know, probably 50 to a hundred deals before we actually bought a house, which is pretty crazy. And I was actually looking at some stats the other day. I was like, how many houses in LA County did I walk into during my career doing that? And I estimated 10,000 homes. Oh my God, that's crazy. So, and were you doing the analysis on all of these? Like, were you the, the main kind of doing the underwriting and, and acquisitions? I was the main guy, but we looked at it as a team. You know, we kind of have meetings and kind of talk about why we think whatever and come to a conclusion, especially if it was starting to get kind of like tight on a deal and we were kind of unsure, we'd all definitely group up and talk about it and go through the numbers. And then what role did uh, your mom and stepfather play? What were they up to? My stepfather was on the construction side and design. And then my mom was kind of like the CFO, kind of making sure everything was kind of running the way it was. So she kind of had her hands in everything, but more on the financial side of things. Was she also a realtor at one point? She was because we sold everything in-house. So she was the broker. And that's kind of how she started in the 80s, selling houses in like the hood of LA. I wanted to get your opinion on this. Somebody said that you should never try to sell your own properties just because you're not going to handle the negotiation well. It's an emotional deal. And I just wanted to hear what you had to say. Like I handle my own sales when I, when I do them. I know the property really well. I enjoy the sales process. But I started to think, well, maybe I'm making a mistake and leaving money on the table by doing it myself. I mean, I have the opposite thoughts on that. I think because you have so much skin in the game, you're going to negotiate harder. You're going to be that much more involved and you could use the emotion to your advantage, I would say. Yeah, just different opinions. So I want to hear like how things started to develop that you ended up changing your, your personal strategy. How was that deciding to leave the family business to venture out on your own? Talk to us about what you were thinking and feeling because that's, that's a tough jump to do. And I just wanted to hear what it was like for you. Yeah, it was definitely a, a tough jump. And that was when? 2019, 20? It was like basically end of 2019, early 2020 was sort of that transition. But yeah, it was, it was tough. But the catalyst that made me do that is, like I said, I bought those few duplexes. I held them for 10 years and I saw the power of long-term holding. I mean, these properties that I bought. So what'd you buy them for? I think it was a, I mean, there were different numbers, but like, I'll give you an example of one that I bought for 300,000. I put about maybe $130,000 and then eventually sold it for $1.4 million 10 years later. So I made a million dollars off that deal off one duplex. Pretty nice return. And you had 10 of them? Is that how many you had? Did I hear that no, right? No, three. Three, okay. <laughs> three. okay. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had 10. Yeah, exactly. I should have I tried to get there. And not all of them made that much. That was like the best one, I would say. That was the home run? That was the home run. So I saw that they appreciated by 400%. And what were they cash flowing in LA? How, what, what kind of cash flow were you earning? Like cash on cash on the money I put was pretty high. But when I started looking at what my cash return was on the equity I had on the properties, it was probably like three or 4%. So that's what the catalyst was to sell that first property. 
look in the Midwest because my family, my wife has family in Kansas City. So that's why I started looking out there. Saw that I could triple, quadruple my cash flow by moving the equity from these duplexes of, over to a 14 unit that I bought in Kansas City. So I went from making 1200 a month to 5000 a month. And that was a tough hurdle to get over because everything I'd done was in my backyard. But I found the right team, did the first deal. And to this day, that deal is still working out great. In LA, was there, is there rent control? I mean, were you capped in terms of what, how much you could bump your rents? Yeah, there is uh, rent control on properties that were built, uh, I believe it's before 1978, which in LA is probably like 80% of the properties. Uh, though now there's California rent control that kind of takes, takes that over too. But yeah, it's 3% a year. Basically, when a tenant is in the unit, they, they sort of own it. And, you know, we, a lot of times we would have to pay someone $50,000 to move out a unit before we sold it. But paying them that 50 made us another 100K on the sale, for example. I want to hear about the sales process and then the 1031 process that you did. I, I presume you did a 1031 on selling the, and you sold all three basically at the same time? Within a couple of years. Okay. So it was kind of staggered a little bit. Staggered for sure. Tell us about the 1031. There, we've got a lot of beginning and intermediate investors that they've maybe heard 1031, the term thrown about, but around, but what is a 1031? How does it work? What are the advantage of it? Why should you do it? A 1031, basically you can sell a property and move that profit slash gain into a new property and defer the tax. You don't have to pay the tax on that gain as long as you move the money into another deal. But the caveat is this time constraints. So in 45 days, you need to select at least three properties, one of which that, or you could close all three depending on what it determined and then close within 180 days. And then the purchase price of the new property has to be greater or higher than the old one. And then you have to have greater or higher debt than you had previously on that property. So it's a little bit of time pressure, right? Yeah. You basically like, ideally you have the property you're going to buy before you even sell the other one. How did you end up choosing Kansas City, moving to the Midwest? How did all of that come about? Yeah. Like I said, uh, my wife has family there. So that's why I initially started looking there, but just started looking at the numbers and they made sense. And then just going there and feeling it out and seeing, oh, this is actually a pretty cool place. They have cool bars, restaurants, coffee shops, this thing's going on here. It's not just like cows and nothing going on. You know, these are actually legitimate cities that people want to live in that are affordable, that have room to grow still and have, and our population growth, all that good stuff that you want to see. So how did you find that first deal? You were just there visiting your mother-in-law, your, your, and family and just had some free time and you were out looking around. Is that how things unfolded? I mean, I was just kind of bored and, and started talking to, or not looking at talking to brokers right away, but kind of looking at deals that are out there and then connected with some brokers and the deal that we ended up, I ended up buying, I had actually walked it before they were done doing the rehab. So basically I bought a property that they flipped to me. Essentially it was, everything was done to it, plumbing, electrical, all that kind of stuff. And it was still able to get double digit cash returns. This was like towards the end of 2019. So it was like when the rates were a little bit higher and those, there just wasn't as much competition 
from out-of-state people at that moment. And yeah, and that's kind of how that happened. So how did you end up funding that deal? I mean, you had a decent chunk of change from the 1031 to work with. What did that first deal look like? How many units were they? And then I want to get into how you manage them because you're doing that remote, remotely, right? I am. Moved about 500K into that deal. 1.6 million was the purchase, 14 units, and it makes about 60,000 a year. You could do the math. It's, I think it's like 12% cash on cash return, which is hard to do these days, but it was just a very unique situation that I got into there and the loan. And then a couple, a few years of interest only period as well on the loan, which kind of helped it get to a better place before that kind of burned off. Would you advise investors to do interest only if they can? Yeah. I mean, we did a loan. One of the last deals we did is a full term interest only. And I think some people are like, well, you got to start paying off your debt. It was like, well, with as prices go up and inflation's high too, you're eating away at that debt anyway. I always suggest going interest only if possible. Tell me how you, did you decide you and your brother to do this at the same time together or did that kind of happen over a, a period of time? So I bought that property in November, 2019 with my own that was my own property. I, I bought that my own 1031 funds. And then in January of 2020, we left the business. And then September of 2020, we did kind of our first kind of larger syndication project in Oklahoma City. And that was also some 1031 money into that property. And then we raised a little bit of money from other people. But it, it was tough for us to go like, hey, you guys are like flipping in LA and now you're buying Apart, large apartments in Oklahoma. It was like pretty tough for us to raise on that first deal. And we only raised about, I think, 25% of the equity from other people. But it's what kind of got us our start in that business. Did the skill set that you developed flipping 400 homes, was there any carryover to doing the multifamily? I mean, there, in terms of, there's, there had to be to some degree, right? Like analyzing deals, like Tell me about that. Like, what skill sets are applicable in both flips and multifamily? I mean, construction, it's wood construction is kind of the same with houses and buildings. Really good at, I think one of our strengths was like due diligence in the flip business. And so, due diligence in the apartment business is, is not that different. It's like a little more complicated, I would say. But also, I think another of our strengths is just kind of looking at it and kind of thinking outside the box, like we, like that first deal we bought, we actually ended up putting a studio unit in an old pool room because the property used to have a pool, but it didn't have a pool any longer, but there was all this extra space. And we're like, we could do something with this. And we added an extra unit and that brings, you know, $600 a month times 12 and divide that by a cap rate. You're creating quite a bit of value by not even that big of a change. Tell me how the management remotely is going. Like that, it's got its challenges, I'm sure. What what are the pros and cons of it? You're living in Bend, Oregon. That's that's pretty awesome. You know, you're skiing and having a good time. But what are the challenges of of managing stuff remotely? I mean, yeah, if something serious comes up, you can't just go down the street and take a look at it. You have to kind of rely on your manager and their their expertise. And we've had issues with management as well. We actually just let go of our Oklahoma assets, the manager we had there, and are bringing on a new one 
And I think we did a really good job bringing on this new manager. We interviewed four different managers. We talked to references. We talked to brokers and trying to get a feel of who the best person for what we're trying to do is out there that has the best systems. And yeah, you have to have referrals. You need to do your homework and you need to just work really hard to put together the best team you possibly can because you're not there physically and you can't do a lot of things that maybe you could do if you were there. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. 
Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. When you buy a place, are you inheriting like existing property management? No, we're always putting our, our management, though that first KC deal, the management company was in place. And that's who you got rid of or no? No, no, that's separate in Kansas City, the different managers and then the Oklahoma stuff. But yeah, so that manager was there and they were actually good. So I, I think I just got lucky, honestly, with that one because they've been good. And, and another part of it is we're just super involved. You know, we do weekly calls. We have like KPI reporting, like they're telling us what our occupancy at, what our delinquency is at, how leasing is going, all that kind of stuff. I mean, we're calling, we're, we have emails almost daily, sometimes text messages with managers. I mean, we're, we're super hands-on. So that's a big thing too. It's like, you can't just let the managers just do, you have to make sure you need to be on it too. And that's a big part of the success. And how often, so the different cities you're in, tell me again, it's Oklahoma City, Norman. And Kansas City. And Kansas City. How often are you, are you headed there? Once a quarter. The lucky thing is my brother is not married and doesn't have kids, so he can go more often than I can. That's nice. So you, you send him pretty more often? That's cool. A little more often, but I want to get out there too, you know? So how are you guys breaking up the responsibilities between you and your brother? He does more acquisitions. I do more like the marketing of our business for investors and some of the investor relations and some of the accounting stuff. But at the end of the day, we kind of have our hands in everything because it's just the two of us and we have no employees, but we third party manage. So that that's part of it. I wanted to hear if there's anything you miss at all from the flipping days. Do you miss that at all in being in the family business or is it good to move on to the next thing? I mean, it's more good to move on, but I'd say that the main thing I miss is we did some really high design projects. I mean, we did some four to $5 million projects in the Hollywood Hills. And so we did some like really fun, amazing projects that some of them got awards and got into different blogs and all that kind of stuff. So it's cool to be part of that. And now we're just kind of doing workforce housing. It's pretty vanilla kind of stuff, but my life is better. Definitely. So the, the cash flow is greatly increased. You guys were, you know, as a flip, the downside is you're, you know, a lot of people say it's, it's, you're creating a job and it doesn't end. You know, you got to keep it pumping. I heard you say like you had to sell like three houses a month to pay for overhead at one point. Yeah. We had to do two, three deals a month just to pay for everything. So it's like we had to do four deals a month just to like make some money, basically. And that's a pretty stressful and a high pressure space to be in. And yeah, like you said, the flip business is a job. You have to go to the sites all the time. This thing's happening. You're selling properties. It's a full-time job when, when the apartment stuff is, it's still busy, but it's less like things have to happen today. It's more like you do as much as you need to do. Do you think doing flips though is a good place to start for somebody just getting started? I think it's a good way to create capital. You know, if, if I hadn't been in that business, I wouldn't have any cash to do what I'm doing today. So I think it's a good way to kind of, for someone just starting out doing a flip and maybe 
using part of the profits to do another flip and use part of the profits to park into something long-term and keep on doing that until you could focus more on long-term investing, I would say. But yeah, you're not going to just start out uh, having all this money. So you need to create the money in some way. Talk about the tax advantages of of multifamily versus a flipping business, because there are some tax advantages. Yeah, because most flips you're doing in less than a year. So you're basically getting taxed as ordinary income, which is depending on your tax bracket, it can be, you know, 30, 40%, which is huge. And then with the apartment game, like I said, we, we did a 1031, so we deferred all those gains. And then we're also doing accelerated depreciation. So usually depreciation, which is a paper loss, essentially, you depreciate over 27 and a half years. But what acceleration, accelerated depreciation allows you to do is accelerate a lot of that depreciation in the first year. So I think it's like 20 to 30% of that depreciation in the first year. So that basically what happens is someone invests like 100K into our deal, they're getting 60 to $70,000 in losses in that first year, paper losses, not actual losses. And they can carry those losses forward for, for 20 years. So the idea is that all the cash flow you're making for years to come, you're not paying taxes on. And then obviously always ref- everyone's situation is different. So I always tell people to talk to their CPA and, and kind of do their own research too. Don't, don't take my own word for it. Obviously, basically we, we pay little to no tax at this point, the way things are structured, though accelerated depreciation, bonus depreciation is being kind of drawn down right now. And we'll see if they'll keep it going in the future. I had Yona Weiss on the show here a couple of weeks ago, and he does cost segregation studies. Is that what you're talking about? Are you doing cost segregation studies to get the bonus depreciation and the accelerated depreciation? Correct. Yeah. So it's totally worth doing, right? Right now it is. I mean, I think later it's going to be more of a cost benefit analysis as that gets kind of drawn down. So explain a little bit more about how cost segregation works. You're depreciating. Explain. It's like carpet and there's, there's only certain things that can be accelerated on the depreciation schedule, right? Yeah. It's like an engineering study where they break down the electrical, the drywall into different buckets, like a five-year bucket depreciation, 15-year, 27 and a half year. And so the cost segregation study kind of allocates them appropriately so that you know you could offset those things earlier during the life of the investment, which you want to do because you rather offset costs earlier because a dollar today is, is better than a dollar tomorrow. Yona made this interesting point. He said most people don't even know about cost segregation studies and the, the advantages of doing this bonus depreciation that you're talking about. He said, oh, ask even CPAs, like they may have heard of it, but don't really understand it. And it, it seems like it's a you know, a really wise thing to do. Is there any reason not to do a cost segregation study in your mind? I mean, maybe for like a small property, like a house or duplex, maybe it won't make sense. That's the only because of the cost of the study and all that. And which is what? About how much would you pay on a study? I think for our properties is around four grand. And your savings are far more than that, obviously. The ROI on that is like, I don't know, something stupid. Yeah. So I wanted to hear a little bit about, you know, we're in a rising interest rate environment. What's it like right now in terms of your investors? Are they skittish to do new deals? Is it harder to find new deals? 
talk to me about like just what you're seeing in the market right now in in the Midwest. I mean, I think definitely investors are a little bit hesitant right now. I wouldn't say they're skittish, but if they are going to invest, they're going to invest less dollars than maybe they were doing, you know, a year ago. And yeah, it's really tough to make deals pencil right now when you have 6% plus rates and sellers still want what they wanted last year. It doesn't pencil, but like, for example, the deal we're closing in a week or two in Kansas City, we're assuming the debt at 3.99% that still has six months of interest only period. And that's what kind of made the deal, even though we have to put a lot more money down because of the loan amount based on the difference between the loan amount and the purchase price, we're ending up putting, I think, 40% down, which is is larger than what we've put down on a lot of the other properties. But with that at 3.99%, that spread between what we can get today and what that is, is like made the deal happen. And how are you finding these deals? Or, or do you have brokers that you've developed relationships with that are bringing them to you? Or are you doing your own research? Mostly brokers that are bringing it to us. A couple of people have connected with me and we've done two deals now that people connected with me on Twitter and brought the deal to us. Let's hit Twitter. Like, How has Twitter impacted your business? Like I said, it brought those deals. I've met a lot of investors. I've met a lot of good friends that now I've met in real life at, at Recommine, for example. And yeah, it's helped kind of build my business. I, I kind of did a study of where kind of our funds come for our deals. And so a third of it has come from my brother and I, a third of it has come from like friends and colleagues, and a third of it has come from people I've met on Twitter now. That's wild. Yeah, it is pretty wild. You're meeting people on the internet and they're giving you money. So it's crazy. Yeah, it's really crazy. So, and it's just, they're seeing your content and seeing your tweets and they're reaching out to you by DM and saying, Hey, I'd like to get involved in your deals. Yeah. And then we kind of have like a funnel on our website where they download an ebook and some emails go out. They set up a call with me to get those interactions for like months before. So it doesn't just happen like that easy, you know, and maybe they've been fought. Maybe they've been following me on Twitter for six months and then we interact for another few months and then finally they invest in one of our deals. Tell me about, you mentioned a tax strategy book. Tell me about that. How did you, did you write it yourself? Yeah, I, I, I wrote it myself. So it's called a tax stack strategy and you could download it on our website as well. What's it go into? It goes into 1031 exchanges, accelerated depreciation, which we touched on. And then also solo 401k. So you could convert your 401k into a solo 401k. So you could self-direct into real estate deals or other kind of investments, which is huge. And what's the advantage of, of doing that, changing it from a regular 401k to a solo 401k for people that don't really understand the difference? You just have more control and hopefully you're going to be able to beat whatever your 401k is doing. It's way more fun. Do you, do you feel like in real estate, you've got way more control than... Do you invest in the stock market or anything like that? Or would you rather have the control that you have with real estate? No, I don't. I just like investing in what I know, basically. The only other thing, and we, we've talked about it before, is, is I invest like maybe 1% or 2% of my net worth into Bitcoin. That's about it. In case that asymmetric risk pays off, right? Yeah. I mean, so far it's actually paid off pretty well. So I'm happy. Yeah. Oh, you got in early? March, 2020. So that, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's a good pretty time. good time to buy. This is like, I think 3,900, maybe 4,000 right around there. So that's... I think it was around six. Maybe it was April. I don't know. 
that was a great time to load up if you had the foresight to do that. Hard to do though, when everything's plummeting and it looked like. I didn't have the foresight. I just happened to have a few bucks at that moment. So I was like, why not? How'd you get into it? Did you have friends that were pushing it or? I have a friend that's super into it and he's always in my ear telling me to buy it. And I was like, all right, you're a smart guy. I, I think I'll at least have to buy a little bit if you're so all about it. Yeah. Is he a real estate guy also? No, he actually is like an e-commerce guy. So um, we've got a show on Bitcoin called The Bitcoin Fundamentals that I started watching it like in 2000. I don't know when it came out, 17 or 18. And like, uh-huh. you know, kind of got turned on to the whole Bitcoin scene. So it's not widely, uh, it, it's kind of viewed poorly, I would say, in the real estate Twitter community. Is that your experience? I don't think people are fans of it that much in the real estate space. It is pretty speculative, I would say, but so can real estate be that way. But it's good to diversify a little bit. Yeah. So this is a real estate show, not Bitcoin. So let's let's jump back to let's jump back to real estate. What's your like longer term plan with with the apartments? Is there an exit strategy? It sounds like you're just going to hold them, right? Or what's the plan? Our kind of plan is you know, hold properties longer term, but refinance and return most of the capital within five years and only sell if it's like an older asset to buy something newer, which we did our first Oklahoma deal we, that we bought in September of 2020. We just sold last October 2022, hit like a 60% IR, which is insane. And then we was able to 1031 that money into a property that was 30 years newer. So it was just like a win-win all around. And I had 1031 into that property, sold that property and then deferred the gain again and then another 1031. So I've done like, I have two instances now that I've done two 1031s with the same original cash. Does that make sense? That's wild. Yeah, it makes sense. Total sense. So is there a, a time period? Like, how does that work? Is there, do you have to hold a, an investment for a certain period of time before you do another 1031 or is there no time limit on that? I've heard some like mixed things on that. I, I think you do want to at least hold it at least a year, ideally a couple of years, which we did because yeah, I've heard some kind of mixed, mixed things on that. I've heard the same. I'm in the middle of a reverse 1031 and I've heard the same like one or two years. You probably need to hold it before you do anything. You started into the flip business in 2008. Do you see any similarities now? What's going on now with what the real estate market was like back when you first got started? Not really, just because, you know, then the reason why we had that recession is because people were able to get loans willy nilly doesn't matter how much money you made and it was just a bunch of bad loans and now we have good loans and it's really strong so i think the residential home space is not going to take a big hit but when you see the commercial side i think there's going to be some distress there just because there's a lot of people that took out bridge loans and for your listeners that don't know what a bridge loan is basically it's a high loan of value loan that's meant to like get you over like doing work on a property and then doing a refinance into a more permanent loan. So a lot of the times these rates are also floating. And as you know, rates have skyrocketed over the last 12 months. So a lot of those loans are probably underwater. Like the loan amounts probably even more than what it's worth. And they they went from having a 5% loan to now they probably have like an 8% loan and they're going to be, and a lot of those loans are coming due. So a lot of those people are going to have to do something or recapitalize some, somehow. 
And so I think there's going to be some opportunity there because of that. I think I saw Nick Huber is trying to start a bank and like providing bridge loans to this kind of situation. I, I don't know if you saw that. I saw him. He was like starting like six businesses or something, which seems kind of insane. Yeah, it's throwing a lot at the wall. But it sounds like he's having other people lead it and that he's probably just putting his like marketing side behind it. I think that's exactly what he's doing. He's He's got an equity stake and he's having other people run the thing and yeah, which which can work, but you, you still have to do something. He's actually doing a cost segregation company too. Got his hands full, I would say. I was kind of just looking at your Twitter feed today and you talked about your why. And there's a book called from Simon Sinek wrote it. It's called Start With Why, which is a great book. I had Antonia Botero on uh, the show and it came out last week, but she talked about her why. And I, I just wanted to hear what your why was for what you're up to and what you're doing. Ultimately, for me, is I have monthly cash flow goals that I want to hit. And those goals are in place because I'll be able to pay for like the lifestyle I want to have and the freedom and provide for my family the way I want to provide and then still have some money left over to invest in other people's deals or continue to do our own deals. But maybe we become more picky at that point. I don't really do like crazy good deals because I don't really need to grow it much more. And luckily for me now, we, we've gotten our portfolio. We're, we're about to close this next deal. We'll have about 420 units in the Midwest, about $35 million in assets under management, which we own more than half of because of the money that we've put into it. And I don't need to do another deal, which is a nice place to be, but we still want to grow. And, and, and we want to grow to $100 million in assets under management, probably end up being around over 1,000 units, maybe 1,200 units or so. And you're at what, 300 and some right now with? 420 and 35 million. 420 and 35 million. And want to grow it to 100. A third there. Yeah, a third there. And then you think you've got the- two and a half years. So not bad. That's a lot of growth. You've got the deals, you've got the investors, you can make it happen. Yeah, we're on track to, to get there for sure. The goal is to get there probably by the end of 2025. And that tweet that you referred to, like, I think, like you said, the why is so important because like, especially in the real estate business, it's not like rainbows and unicorns all the time. It like gets really tough. And, and when it gets really tough, it's like, you need something like, you need something that's higher to get you through all that. You know, you need something like, this is my goal. This is what I'm working to get to. I know this is tough right now, but I'm going to get through it because that's where I want to get to. 100%. I agree with that. I'm going through that right now. I've got tenants that left one of my rentals and it's just like, they just trashed it. It's really in bad shape. And you, I walk the first time you walk in, it's just like, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. I have countless stories like that. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. It's, it's brutal. But yeah, uh, to your point, having that long term goal of the cash flow to fund your lifestyle, which, you know, kind of makes the tough days easier to get through. Yeah. And like, I just actually retired my wife too, which has been great for our family. She, she's less stressed. She's has time to like take care of herself, like do all the things she wants to do for our family. And, and it's just been, and we even have more because I have flexibility with my work and she's not working anymore. Like we, we've been spending a lot more time with each other and it's just been absolutely amazing. That's awesome. What was she doing? What was, what was her career? She was in the healthcare industry, like healthcare tech. 
implementing Epic systems in clinics and stuff and doing some coding and reporting and all that kind of stuff. And was that always one of your goals was to be able to allow her to retire to focus on, and you've got how many kids? Honestly, it wasn't, but we just got to the point where like, it just didn't make sense for her to work anymore. It's like, she was just too stressed and couldn't be a good mom and be a good like employee too. It was just really tough. And we just got to a point where it just didn't make sense anymore. It's really tough to do it all well. Something has to give, you know, when you're being stretched thin. I wanted to know, you, you mentioned the $100 million number. Do you think you'll be able to quit? Like, do you have a cash flow number where it's like, that's enough cash flow? I don't need to do anymore. And like, it's not that your hands off, but like, you're not continuing to try to grow the portfolio. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the plan. Just, I mean, maybe we'll still do a deal or two here and there, but it'd be very selective and very picky or not quite sure what we'll do at that point, or maybe become a professional LP while still actively managing what we have. I mean, if we're, if we have that many assets under management, it'll still be like a decent amount of time that we have to put into it. For sure. For sure. Do you think you'd miss the the deal and the, like the the thrill of the deals and like that action? Is that something you like really love? I do like that, and it definitely like kind of gives me a rush. You know, when a good deal comes through, it's pretty exciting. But I think I'll I'll find other things to kind of keep that going in some other way, other businesses, whatever. I'll figure out something to keep. Like I'm definitely never that person that's going to be able to just sit on the couch and do nothing. That's for sure. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures 
slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I wanted to get into your advocacy for men's mental health. This is really an important area for me. I I actually listened to a podcast that Chris Powers did last night, and he talked about just crashing and burning in in his career and his personal life, just like had too much going on and just burn out. And he was like really open and raw and honest. And I think it's easy to see guys and women on real estate Twitter and feel like they've got it all figured out. And that's often, you know, it's not the case. So I want to hear how a little bit of how you got involved and interested in your advocacy for mental health. In 2015, we were still going to the foreclosure auctions. And when you go to the foreclosure auctions, sometimes second loans go to auction. So there'll be the first loan and then there'll be a second loan behind it. And we bought a second loan when I thought it was a first loan. I got bad information from the title company. Um, and with the trustee sales, you can't get title insurance. So it's not like you get covered for that in, in a normal real estate transaction. And so when we had to sell that property later, we ended up having to pay off that first loan. And there was a substantial loss there. Was working with an investor that just like took it very badly. And I was in my late 20s and basically kind of attacked me. And I just had a lot of shame and guilt from that whole experience. I went into like a depressive episode for a few years where I couldn't even really get out of bed. And not like for three years straight, but like off and on during those three years, it was, it was up and down. And yeah, and I just went and that's why, you know, I went through therapy, different kinds of medications, retreats. I went inside and figured out a lot of things. And that's why. My why and my goals are so such the way that they are because I realize like I I don't want to build this like crazy portfolio. I just want to create even it's still a large portfolio. Don't get me wrong. It's still like we're still reaching high. You know, we're, we're still going somewhere. But like for me, it's more of about a lifestyle and creating the life. It's more about creating the life that I want than like some ego trip of building this huge portfolio. And I, I think that as men in the business world, we're, we're not connected. We're just like gun ho. We got to do all these things and we don't, we're not introspective enough when we're not building, we're not like methodically building a way that's like best for ourselves. We're doing it a lot of times for what we think the world will see as best for us or something. Yeah, that's exactly what Chris was saying. Like he was so concerned about what everyone else thought about him. And it was just like completely somewhat image oriented in a way, rather than just being like, what do I feel about myself? What do I think? 
Yeah, exactly. Like you need to build the life that you want to build and maybe it is that billion dollar portfolio and maybe you're you're that special person that's going to get it there, but for me it's just like living lifestyle I want to live and in the place I want to live to be able to do the things that I want to do but still challenge myself and grow and 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 build something. It takes a lot of courage to talk about this. Were there anybody like did you have any influences to that encourage you to talk about the experience of depression? Yeah, Sean Sweeney is one person that's active on Twitter that's kind of had some some mental health stuff and him and I have talked a little bit. And there's a couple other people on Twitter that kind of, uh, you know, motivated me to talk about it more because the reason why I talk about it is hopefully my experience could relate to some other people that are struggling too, so that they can know that there's hope and that they'll get better and, and they'll be better off in the long term because of it. And I don't think the depression stuff is a weakness. I think it's actually a strength because naturally I'm a person that will just kind of go, go, go and keep on going. And like the depression thing actually like kind of forces me to like slow down and kind of reflect and, and kind of realize that maybe I'm like going too hard. And so it kind of ends up being a good thing in a weird way, even though it sucks. It absolutely sucks. I've been through a couple episodes myself and it's brutal to go through. It's brutal for the people around you. If family has never experienced it, it's, it can be like really hard to see this guy who's like ambitious and hard charging and, you know, on the go all the time, all of a sudden just being able to be like, not do anything. That's like hard to, if you haven't been educated in mental health issues, it's, it can be tough. I do think it's great that like guys like you and Sean are, are open about it and talking about it to get more awareness out there because it's, it happens. It's an, like you said, it sucks to go through, but there are gifts to it as well. And that's actually one thing, like once I get to that, that goal, I want to hit doing something in the mental health world with men in the business world. Not sure quite what that means yet, but to be involved in that in some way would be, I would get a lot of, a lot out of that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That would be a, a good why too, to, you know, like your next why. Do you have any practices that, that you implement? You mentioned a little, a few things pretty quickly, but I wanted to really kind of touch on this. But do you have any practices that you do or, or things that you implement in your own life to not prevent another depression, but I guess in a sense to make sure that you are functioning on all cylinders and, you know, maximizing what you're able to do? Yeah, I think it's, I'm not drinking. I'm, you know, I'm keep active, ski, rock climb, do things, walks. I'm huge on walks because it makes me think through things really well. It helps me clear the mind, but it's not so taxing that it's like exhausting either. Do you take you like, are you listening to anything when you're going for a walk or is it just you you and your thoughts? I'd say it's like 50-50. Sometimes I'll listen to a podcast. Sometimes I, I just won't and I'll just like let my mind do whatever it's going to ruminate in. And a lot of times I figure out solve problems that way. But also like intense workouts help kind of solve problems because after you have those endorphins going and you could kind of really think through some things or like things pop into your head that wouldn't have otherwise popped into your head. And so just making sure that, you know, self-care is very important, eating healthy, taking care of yourself and just building and creating good relationships and people around me that could support me when 
because I mean, we all go through tough times and it's not always good and you just need the right people around you to support you through those tough times. And so you said that was 2016 when you first... 2015. Yeah. And I've kind of gone through little things since then, but I've been going to therapy regularly and just talking about things. And and another thing that it's really helped me with is just like, it's made me a lot more empathetic towards other people. I was like, oh, why is this guy like, maybe he didn't sleep well. Maybe he's going through something. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it does develop a a compassion that you may have not had otherwise. I know for me, in my case, I I didn't have the compassion that before a depression as I did after going through a brutal one. It softens you or I don't know what it, whatever, but it, do you think uh, somebody asked this, Chris, like, because he's kind of softened up a little bit. He is more compassionate. Has it uh, affected your business life at all? Like, is it, you know, in a sense, like made it a liability that you've got compassion and empathy or is it completely the opposite? I think it's the opposite. I think people could feel it in you and they like, oh, this guy like kind of sort of cares about me. He's not just like trying to get everything he can out of me. And I think it just makes for better conversations, deeper conversations and everyone gets, it just gets more value. Yeah, it's definitely a multi-pronged approach. I think like you were sharing all the different things you do like to to manage it and and it definitely has its gifts like you said. It's hard work to keep it going, you know? It's like you got to work at it every day. You got to keep going, keep those routines, keep doing it. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I just want to thank you for sharing because it uh I just think the more people share about it, the better and it it takes courage to talk about it and Hopefully, if it helps one person today, like, you know, we've made made a dent. Yeah. I mean, when I posted that Twitter tr- thread about my whole experience, I was over the moon how people were supportive. And you know, I got so many DMs, people sharing about their experiences. And it's just, I think a lot more people deal with it than they, they admit because it's kind of has a stigma for sure. I completely agree. I completely agree. Even though it's becoming less so as, you know, it's becoming more open out there. But the stigma is still there and it's still very difficult to talk about. I mean, this is kind of challenging for me, honestly, knowing that this is going out to however many people watch it. But like, you know, it's, it's difficult to talk about, but good stuff. I wanted to jump into the fire round here that I've got for you. Sounds like you are into podcasts and learning. And I want to hear about like a most impactful book or podcast that has made a big impression on you. I really like the psychology of money because we're just talking about that, you know, like why, why do you actually want to make this money and what is it going to do for you? And why I think it also goes on into like why certain people are good investors, et cetera, et cetera, which, which is cool. And I think you have, you said you've read it before too, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a fantastic book. It's uh, I listened to it on Audible. It's, uh, there's not a lot of books I will listen to twice. There's a handful though, and, and that is one of them. Morgan Housel is the, the author. And I think I mentioned we've got a, he's a great writer. He, we've got a newsletter called We Study Markets. It's free and we've covered a lot of his stuff chapter by chapter in that book. I did one. His last chapter is called Confessions, how he manages his own money. And it's a great chapter. It's just how he thinks about his own money and you know manages his financial life. Another book I like is Shoe Dog, The Nike Story by Phil Knight. Amazing. Has nothing to do with the real estate, but it has a lot to do with business and just kind of being being in the trenches and getting things done. 
Isn't there a movie coming scrappy. out? Scrappy. He was super scrappy. Super you know? scrappy. Right. Isn't there a yeah. movie coming out about called Air or something like that with Matt Damon? and? Oh, yeah. About the Michael Jordan shoes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, the Nikes. And yeah, he's, I he's think got I saw a, that. He's got a, there's got to be a Phil Knight in the, in the movie. So there's, I, I would assume so. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that's made us successful in our business is we're pretty scrappy. We're, we're, we get in there. We, we, before we fired our old manager, my brother was working and leasing units on site on one of our properties. And that was very enlightening. And we learned a lot. And, and you know, you got to get your hands dirty sometimes and get in there. You know, you're not too good for any role that is being done in your business. What about your best investment? You've had several, it sounds like here lately, but I don't think you've mentioned your best investment. Honestly, my best investment was the house that I just sold in California that I bought in 2013. We put a lot of money into it, but that property I was able to sell and move that money into the property I bought in Oregon and still have money on the side to continue to invest in what we're doing. And the only reason why I bring that up is because a lot of times people say that your house is not an investment, but it totally is. Anything you hold long enough is going to be a good investment, basically, in, in the US. It's like the Robert Kiyosaki thing, the rich dad, poor dad. Like he says that, that, that your house is a liability. You know, it's not an asset. That was my next question. What controversial opinion do you hold that, that the real estate world may not share? Do you have any other ones like that? That is maybe one, but I, I agree with you. Like I, I've done well on my own home. So yeah. And then what's actually controversial, not maybe not on Twitter, but just like holding not maybe not forever, but like 10 plus years. That's like very unusual because most people like, especially in the syndication world, they're holding for five to seven years because a lot of times on the back end, that's where they're making their money. But in, in our particular deals, we're, we've invested so much money into the deals that we're, we're in it with our investors to go into the long term. Kind of a Warren Buffett principle is long term holding, like never sell. Strategically sell to 1031 into something better. There you go. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Keep it rolling. Keep that rolling. I love it. Keep pushing the can down the road, basically. Last one here. What does success mean to you? That one is one I'm always still figuring out. But like I said, is to get to my goals and the why and all that kind of stuff that, that we talked about so that I could have the freedom and lifestyle that I want to have and have the people I love and people I want to be around close and have that time to actually spend with them. That's success for me. That's great. I want to uh, kind of wrap it up here. So I really want to thank you for your time and reconnecting today. This has been a lot of fun talking with you. And thanks for connecting me with your mother, Marissa Solis, that I'm going to talk to her in a week or two. Yeah, it's just been fun. Cool. Yeah, I feel like we've gotten to know each other pretty well, actually. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. So for the, anybody that would like to reach out to you, maybe they're struggling with a tough time. What's the best way for them to get in touch? You could go on my website jb2investments.com or or on Twitter at jb2investments or you could look up my name and then I have the ebook on there and then I also have a blog with you know I've kind of like downloaded my brain into this, these blog posts so you could kind of learn a lot about what we're doing and and if you're trying to get started in the business it's a good way to get I kind of make it pretty simple too and and digestible How do you find the blog is that on your company website yeah, I just go to my website and there's a tab for blog. 
Oh, I'll, have to, I'll definitely have to check that out. Moses Kagan has got one and it's, it's great. It's like amazing education in real estate. I honestly used his sort of as a guide with my own twist. Yeah, I'll put links in the show notes. He's a better writer than me, but I tried. No, he, he's great. And it's awesome that people are sharing their, their, I guess their playbook, but just what they know. It's such a great thing that people are willing to share like they do on whether it's a blog or real estate Twitter. It's super helpful. Yeah, I, I think it's because like a lot of people are like scared to share a lot of those things because they think they might be helping their competition, right? But I think what you get in return is much more than what you might be hurting yourself. Yeah, just kind of have that giving abundance mentality. If you actually are, you probably aren't actually hurting yourself. Yeah, so I will put links in the show notes to your blog, to Moses's blog, to the company website so that uh, people can reach out and keep their learning going. Or even, like I said, if they're having a tough time, reach out to me, reach out to you. Happy to talk to anyone. Yeah, I'm always happy to chat, that kind of stuff. Jonathan, thanks so much for your time, man. Thank you. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.